Good morning again. Uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26 will be our sermon text for this morning. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Before we read uh, that passage, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word and we trust and know that uh, we can only understand rightly your word in a way that takes it to heart. We can only understand it and take it to heart by your spirit. So we pray that you would pour out your spirit uh, in our midst, uh, pour out your spirit into our hearts, that you would open our hearts and open our minds and soften us that we would hear and believe and receive your word. And we pray, Father, that your word would do its work in us, uh, that as you have promised in Isaiah, that your word would not return to you void without accomplishing everything for which you have sent it. And um, we pray that you would do this now by your spirit in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1 beginning with verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the, the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kadamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, you probably don't often inspect your foundation. If you think about it, you know there's a foundation to your house. You know it's there. You're glad it's there because it means that your house is not sinking into the ground. 
but you don't really think about it, much less inspect it. Unless, of course, you have a problem. Well, not all foundations are created equal. Uh, you may remember Jesus told a parable about uh, a foolish man who built his house on sand, and the rain came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand went splat. And of course, uh, the wise man built his house on the rock and the house on the rock stood firm. Well, I want to talk about foundations this morning, and uh, it, it has to do with a funny little word, apostolicity. Apostolicity, uh, which means having to do with the apostles. And uh, we often uh, use the Nicene Creed. This morning we use the Apostles' Creed. We often confess our faith together with the Nicene Creed, uh, which uh, says we believe in one holy Catholic, which means universal, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So pretty much every other week we say we believe in one apostolic church. And I wonder what you think of uh, when you hear that phrase or when you say that phrase every other week, apostolic church. Well, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And John, in the book of Revelation, sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And the wall of the city, he, he says, had 12 foundations. And on them, on them were written the 12 names of the 12 apostles of Jesus. So the apostles are part of the foundation of the church. So this morning we're going to talk about, well, what does that mean, that the apostles are part of the foundation of the church? Well, uh, some of you would rather be, of course, living in your house than staring at the ugly old foundation in the basement. Well, this sermon is going to be a little more like looking at the foundation than kicking up your feet in your living room or preparing lunch in your kitchen or something like that. Uh, for you engineer types, you may love the, the detail and the schematics and the materials and the workmanship and looking at just what the foundation of the church is like. Uh, but for everyone... While we don't look at our foundations every day, uh, they are no less important to our daily living. And so, uh, so are these 15 verses in the book of Acts. So this morning we're going to look at the apostolic foundation of the church in Acts 1, uh, verses 12 through 26. And then we'll talk about, well, what, what does it mean that the church is built on such a foundation? So first we'll look at the foundation itself. And then we'll look at the church, the apostolic foundation and the apostolic church. Uh, first, the apostolic foundation. If you uh, turn to the back of your bulletin, there's an outline there. And you'll see that uh, while we have these two main points, the second one being much more brief, um, the, sec the first point is broken down into five things. So we'll talk about the, the number of the apostles, the qualifications of the apostles, the role of the apostles, the origin of the apostles, and the uniqueness of the apostles. I know by the time you're done here this morning, you won't ever want to hear the word apostles again, but uh, I hope it will be helpful. So first, we're going to talk about the number, the number of the apostles. You know, after Jesus ascends up into heaven, we talked about that a little bit last week, uh, after a little prodding from some angels, the apostles head back to Jerusalem in verse 12. And Luke, the writer of Acts, lists them all for us, all uh, 12 apostles. 
Okay, actually, he only lists 11 apostles, the 12 minus Judas. And the 11 gathered together uh, with the, the women, probably meaning the women who had followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry, together with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And they were all together, and with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And at some point, Peter stands up in their midst, and he begins to speak. And Peter brings up Judas. Now, Judas uh, was probably the elephant in the room, maybe one of many after you just saw the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but Judas had been their friend. He had been their, their fellow disciple. He had been their fellow apostle. For three years, Judas had traveled with them. Peter says in verse 17 that he was numbered among us and allotted his share in this ministry. Without Judas, they're no longer the twelve. Judas lived with them and ate with them and learned with them and preached with them. But he also betrayed them. Or rather, he betrayed Jesus. You can imagine this would have been a bit of a sore spot. I mean, how could this happen? How could God let this happen? Peter tells us how. He, he says in verse 16 that the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. See, this happened, Peter is saying, because it was a part of God's plan. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. And this shows us really a lot about Peter's understanding of Scripture. Right? Peter believed that Scripture was prophetic. It spoke about things to come. He believed that Scripture could not be broken. Right? It had to be fulfilled. He believed Scripture, while written by men, by the mouth of David, he says, uh, its ultimate author was the Spirit of God, who spoke by David's mouth. And maybe most notably, Peter uh, saw Scripture as being fulfilled in his day. And Jesus had taught him that. You may remember back in the Gospel of Luke at the very end, in Luke 24, Jesus said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament was about Jesus. And Peter knew that and was beginning to tease out some of those implications. What does it mean that this book is about Jesus? What does it mean that these words are about the life and the death and the resurrection and the reign of King Jesus? And so Peter says it had to happen this way. And he goes on to quote two verses from the Psalms. And it's important to see that uh, both of those verses, A, are, are written by David, but B, both of them are about David's adversaries. They're about David's enemies. But Peter sees that the life of David, the king of Israel, is really just getting us ready for the life of Jesus, who is the son of David and the greater king of Israel. And so, as on one level, whatever happened to David must happen to Jesus, he fulfills that pattern that David plays out, so what happened to David's adversaries must happen to the adversaries of Jesus. And one of those things in the Psalms is another must, quote, take his office. It's in Psalm 109. And you may wonder, okay, uh, who cares? Uh, what difference does it make that somebody has to step into Judas's place? Well, it, it made a big difference to Luke. 
Um, as we go through the book of Acts, actually Luke emphasizes numbers quite a bit. Uh, we're going to see him bring up numbers again and again. And uh, notice here, uh, Judas was numbered among the apostles, verse 17. And Matthias, Judas's replacement at the end of the chapter, is numbered with the eleven. The fact that Jesus appointed twelve apostles was symbolic. It pointed to the fact that what Christ was doing was restoring Israel. In fact, uh, as one commentator put it, it, it's widely agreed that this stress on the number 12 carries symbolic or, or typological significance. Often it has been interpreted to mean that the 12 apostles are the counterpart of the 12 patriarchs and are thus the founding fathers of a new Israel, a new religion. But this is certainly not Luke's understanding of the 12. He goes on, the Christian way for Luke is not a new religion, but a restoration of Israel. For Luke, the 12 symbolize the fact that God in Christ is restoring Israel to what it should be. The Christian community is Israel, true Israel. And all who recognize Jesus as the Messiah are drawn within this fold. And those Jews who reject him are to be destroyed from the people. The number 12, therefore, emphasizes not a break with the past, but continuity with it, end quote. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. See, at the start of this stage in the church, there had to be 12 apostles to show what God was doing. He is restoring Israel. He is renewing his people of old. But Judas had defected. He had turned aside from his ministry. And so Peter, guided by Scripture, steps in and says, let another take his office. And yet not just anybody can take Judas's place. So there needed to be 12 apostles to demonstrate that God is here restoring his people. He is renewing or continuing his work among his people. That brings us to the qualifications then of the apostles. Now, Peter lists those qualifications in verses 21 and 22. He says, so uh, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. The, the main qualification here is simply being present. Right? They had to have walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and learned from Jesus. They had to have been there the whole time, he says, starting with John's baptism until the day that Jesus was taken up into heaven. Someone who saw Jesus' baptism and heard Jesus teach and witnessed his arrest and his crucifixion and his death. Someone who saw the resurrection, who heard Jesus teach for 40 days, who finally watched as Jesus rose into heaven to be enthroned at the Father's right hand. That's the qualification for being an apostle, having seen Jesus in all of his saving work. And, and we actually see this uh, qualification alluded to elsewhere in Scripture. As you read through the New Testament, you'll notice it here and there. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Uh, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Notice John's emphasis there repeatedly on seeing Jesus and hearing Jesus and touching Jesus. Paul, elsewhere, seeking to uh, verify his apostolic credentials, he, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And when he recounts the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage we read earlier, he mentions Jesus' appearances to Peter and then to the Twelve, then to James, then to the rest of the, the, rest of the apostles, and then last of all, Paul says, to Paul himself. See, whenever these qualifications for apostleship are given, or whenever apostles are, are talked about, or often when they're talked about, this always tops the list. Why is that, right? Why did the apostles have to have seen the risen Jesus? That brings us to the next point, right? So, so the, the number of the apostles was 12, and, and that uh, bears witness to the church as the true Israel, as a continuation of what God was doing from of old, as a fulfillment of God's plan. The qualification for apostles is that they had to have seen the risen Christ, that brings us to the role of the apostles. Verse 22 says uh, that one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. You see, the, the primary qualification for apostles was seeing Jesus in his life and in his death and his resurrection because the primary role of the apostle is to, is to, is, uh, to bear witness to Jesus risen from the dead. See, that is, the apostles were designated eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. That was their role. Their role was to bear testimony to what they saw and heard. Now, now in a sense, of course, it is every Christian's role to talk about Jesus. But only people in the first century had eyewitness testimony. In fact, we can only tell people about Jesus because they first saw and bore witness. See, this is why apostolicity, if I can say it, is tied up with, with Scripture. The apostles' eyewitness testimony is recorded for us in the New Testament. Notice Jesus, uh, John's emphasis on writing in some of the verses he uses uh, on witnessing, in some of the verses he writes on witnessing. John 21, 24, the end of John's gospel, John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. Right? John is bearing witness by writing the gospel of John. 1 John 1, the passage we read a moment ago that, that emphasizes what John saw and heard, it ends with these words. We, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Right? John is bearing witness to what he saw and heard so that others who haven't seen and heard can believe. Or notice Peter's justification for writing 2 Peter, the beginning of 2 Peter. Uh, he says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. See, Peter is saying uh, he knows he's going to die soon. And so he, he wrote 2 Peter to remind his readers, to remind the church about, quote, these things. See, Peter is fulfilling his apostolic role. 
to record, not just for one generation, but for all generations, his apostolic eyewitness to Jesus' resurrection. And of course, as the official designated representatives of Jesus, the apostles, right, to explain the significance of that resurrection for the church. That's what the New Testament does. It proclaims what the apostles saw and it explains it to us so that we understand its significance. And so we can only proclaim Christ because we have first received the apostles' eyewitness testimony to Christ. If they hadn't done their job, the church would have no message. So seeing the resurrection Christ, however, is not the only qualification for apostleship. God is restoring Israel through the, the apostolic witness, through those who, he had, who had seen the resurrected Jesus. But that's not all, and that brings us to the next point, which is about the origin of the apostles. And think about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time post-resurrection. 500 people. Now that doesn't mean that there were 500 apostles. Why not? Well, look at verses 23 to 26. The, the community here in Acts 1 puts forward two men to replace Jesus. Um, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also called Justice, who was probably a pretty decent man since uh, Barsabbas in Hebrew means son of the Sabbath, and uh, Justice in Greek is, uh, means upright or righteous. So this is probably a good guy. He, his nicknames are son of the Sabbath and righteous. So they put forth Joseph and Matthias, who we're told absolutely nothing about. <laughs> Which one would you pick, right? You, you have these two guys. Uh, one, you know he's righteous, he's a good man, he, he honors God's day, and the other you know nothing about. You'd probably pick the first guy. Why are these two men put forward? Well, uh, maybe they're the only two who fit the bill, right? That they're the only two who had been there the whole time, uh, perhaps, but we really don't know why they put forward these two men. We're not told. Here's what we do know. Uh, the 12th apostle is not appointed by the other 11. They didn't have a congregational vote. They prayed. Verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. Uh, look back at, at verse 2 in Acts 1. Verse 2, we're told that Jesus uh, gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And now they pray... Show the one you have chosen. What, what's going on? A few things are, are noteworthy here. First, that they're clearly praying to Jesus. The title Lord can, can be given to the Father or to the Son. It's particularly given to the incarnate and resurrected Jesus. The apostles saw it as Jesus' prerogative to choose his own representatives. Verse 2, he chose the apostles. And so they're, they're saying now, look, show us whom else you have chosen. They're praying to Jesus. Now, th this is interesting for all kinds of reasons, but sometimes, you know, uh, scholars will say things like, well, the early church didn't really believe that Jesus was God. Um, that only came later as legends began to grow up around him. But here we have, uh, in, a, in a relatively early Christian document, the earliest Christians praying to Jesus. The very earliest Christians, before even Pentecost, 
They are praying to Jesus. Now, if that is suspect, and you say, well, that's the Bible, I don't really trust that, uh, you can even look outside of the New Testament to see that early Christians worship Jesus. There's this letter, really interesting letter, uh, you can Google it and find it, uh, from a guy named Pliny the Younger, uh, who was a governor of Bithynia, and he wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan about 112 AD, so pretty early on, right? 112 AD, and uh, Pliny is trying to figure out what to do with the Christian problem. Right? There are Christians, and that's seen as a problem. And uh, he says that those accused of Christianity, he's bringing people before him, accusing them of being Christians, and uh, he says they asserted that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on an affixed day before dawn. Aren't you thankful our service started at 9? Not, or 9.30, whatever time it started. Not before dawn. Uh, the early Christians uh, said that they, they, they met on an affixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. That, that's what the early Christians did and believed. The earliest Christians, according to the pagan Roman governor, worshipped Christ as a God through singing. Now, of course, uh, Peter and the rest don't just pray. They pray. They pray to Jesus. They pray for Jesus to show them whom he has chosen, and then they cast lots. Uh, now, it's, it's funny that a lot of people don't know what to do with this. Um, they cast lots? I mean, it, it seems silly to us. I mean, it's basically they, they threw dice, right? Or they draw, drew straws, or they flipped a coin to figure out who was going to be the 12th apostle. And sometimes people say, actually, the disciples were sinning in doing this, which, of course, Luke doesn't tell us at all in Acts. So that's just, you're adding something to the text there. Other people say it was acceptable for them to do that before Pentecost, but, but post-Pentecost, no, we shouldn't do that anymore. So they draw a distinction between pre- and post-Pentecost, um, as if it was, it's not really good to do, but it was okay for them, but it's not okay for us. Um, and yet... It, we need to start by saying there's no reason to disparage what they did. Uh, the, the point is this, right? Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Which is essentially saying God is sovereign. God's in control, even of the flipped coin. Uh, the disciples are looking to the Lord Jesus to know whom he has chosen to be the 12th apostle. And so they cast lots. This is their way of getting out of the way and allowing Jesus through providence just to clearly express his will in the matter. Now, why do we want to dismiss this? Which we do, I think, often. Um, obviously, we are rightly afraid of what people will do with it. Uh, we, we don't want people to start leaving important decisions up to a lot instead of wisdom. Uh, we, we don't want people to start reading into providence, which we are prone to do. Uh, but there are a few things to note. One, the scripture obviously does enjoin us to use wisdom when making decisions. Uh, if someone sees flipping a coin as a way of getting out of the hard work of thinking deeply through an issue, that's an abuse of scripture. Right? Scripture tells us to use wisdom. Just read through the book of Proverbs. That's one proverb out of many. Um, second, the disciples, in fact, 
had done that hard work. Uh, they had two men who fit the qualifications. And they presented these two equally qualified men, and they went from there. Third, you, you might wonder, okay, well, why not select church leaders like this today? I mean, you, you didn't flip a coin when you elected David and Scott and myself as elders. You, you could have. You didn't. I don't know if I'm thankful for that or not. I, 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 think, I think I am. I'm thankful that you didn't flip a coin. Um, why, don't, why didn't you do that? Well, the answer is because of other things that Scripture says, right? Uh, we don't pick and choose which verses to obey. Next time you need to select a 12th apostle, by all means, cast lots. But for other church leaders, we have other precedents, some of which uh, we will see as we go through the book of Acts. And of course, for other choices in life, we look to all of Scripture, to the breadth, the whole breadth of Scripture's teaching to inform our actions. Of course, when it comes down to it, we need to remember that, that just because it was right for them in the early church, just because they did something contrary to popular belief, uh, that doesn't mean it's necessarily an example for us to follow. We must take the whole of Scripture into account. These verses are, are not prescriptive. They are descriptive of what happened. They're not prescribing. They're not a command. This is how you need to work in the church. They are describing what happened. Our goal is to learn the lesson that these verses give and, and teach. And here is the important point to walk away with. Here's the point of their casting the lot and of that being written in the scripture. The point is that Jesus chose his official representatives. That's what it's getting at. Jesus chose his apostles. Many had seen Jesus risen from the dead, but Jesus chose from those more than 500, 12 men to represent him in the world, uh, to give the, the eyewitness testimony for all time that he had indeed risen from the dead. This special appointment by Jesus is important. In fact, Paul points out his own special appointment in Galatians chapter 1. We'll read about it three times in the book of Acts, but Paul points it out in Galatians 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. See, Paul's apostleship, he says, was from God the Father and through Jesus Christ who appointed him on the Damascus road. His apostleship was in no way from men or through men. True apostleship comes by direct appointment from Jesus. That's the point. Jesus was working through these 12 to restore Israel by their eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And he gave that through these 12 apostles that he himself chose. Which brings us to our last point about the foundation, which is about the uniqueness of the apostles. The, the uniqueness of the, the apostles is really seen in everything that we've said, right? Uh, th there were just 12 men that Jesus especially set aside, men who lived and ate and drank with him, uh, men who saw his life and death and resurrection. These men bore witness to what they saw and heard, and they were chosen by Jesus out of all of those others who saw and heard to have a special function as Jesus' representatives in the early church. These men performed a once-for-all, unrepeatable ministry. They could have no successors. 
because no one beyond the first generation of Christians saw Christ both before and after his resurrection. No one could fill their shoes, literally, or figuratively speaking. Uh, it's the figurative use of literal. Uh, notice, though Judas is replaced, having abandoned his post, the apostle James, one of the twelve, was not replaced after his death in Acts chapter 12. So a few chapters later, James is going to die. They don't replace him. Why not? Because having fulfilled his ministry, there's no need to replace him. And of course, once the first generation died out, there was no possibility either. So the apostles were unique to that time and that place. They, they had a unique and unrepeatable ministry. Now, this is all good until we realize that there are more than just the 12 called apostles in Scripture. And every, everything we've said is really focusing on the 12. Paul is an apostle. He's not one of the 12. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, is called an apostle. He's not one of the 12. Barnabas is called an apostle. He's not one of the 12. In fact, when Paul talks about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if, you, if you listen closely, we're told Jesus appeared to Peter, and then the twelve, and then James, and then all the apostles, and then to Paul himself. The twelve, and then all the apostles. It seems that all the apostles is distinct from the twelve. So what's going on? Uh, the word apostle means one who has sent, one who was sent, one who was sent. Uh, and it's really used in at least three distinct ways in Scripture, right? Uh, same with the word deacon, for example. The word deacon, you know, sometimes it means deacon. Uh, sometimes, though, it's just translated servant, and sometimes it's translated minister, right? It depends on the context which way it's translated. The word apostle is like that as well. Uh, it's used in three distinct ways in Scripture. It can uh, mean, on the one hand, a specially appointed eyewitness of Jesus. That's the, the way we've been talking about. This is what we would sometimes refer to as the office of an apostle, right? A specially appointed eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. But it can also mean simply a, a missionary or a church planter, someone sent out by a church to the mission field. Again, apostle just means one who was sent. And so there's a sense in which an, a missionary or a church planter who's sent from a church to a mission field is, technically speaking, an apostle. Though not fulfilling the office of apostle, he is one who is sent. Uh, as Barnabas and Saul, uh, we'll see later in Acts, Barnabas and Saul were sent out from Antioch in Acts 13, and so they are called apostles in Acts 14. Barnabas was a missionary. He was sent out from Antioch. Uh, the third way the word is used is as representatives of a church. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23, Paul uses the phrase, uh, the apostles of the churches. Apostles of the churches. And actually in, in the ESV, that's actually translated messengers of the churches to avoid confusion. And it simply means people sent from one church acting as representatives of that church to another, right? An emissary, a representative who goes from one church to another. And so the word apostle might mean an appointed eyewitness to the risen Jesus, or it might mean a missionary or a church planter, 
or it might mean a representative of one church to another. In each case, it means one who was sent. Just depends who they were sent by and what they were sent for. And yet those who are appointed eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus still have this unique role, don't they? This includes not only the 12 who have a unique role in symbolizing the continuity of God's work from Old Testament to New, but it also includes at least James, the brother of Jesus, who we're specifically told uh, was met by the risen Jesus, and the Apostle Paul, who we'll see through Acts, uh, repeatedly we'll see in Acts, uh, that he saw the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, this uh, understanding that there are different ways the word apostle is used brings up a question, uh, which is, can we use that word apostle uh, to refer to church planters and missionaries as some people want to do? Uh, Maybe you've been in churches that talk about someone's apostolic mission uh, or apostolic ministry on the mission field. And uh, should we do that, right? Can we call them apostles? Um, Well, in some ways, we probably shouldn't be too dogmatic here. Uh, It's interesting, Calvin mentions that uh, by the meaning and derivation of the word, all ministers of the church can properly be called apostles, which means from now on, I want you to refer to me as Apostle Luke. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, And, of course, true missionaries and church planters do a a kind of foundation-laying work in their area, don't they? There's a certain similarity to what the apostles did, And yet, there is a big difference, isn't there? There's a big difference between the foundational, unrepeatable, once-for-all eyewitness testimony of the apostles versus the ongoing, repeatable, church-planting missionary work. And, of course, it kind of seems to me that when people take that title, apostle, to themselves nowadays, that that people tend to associate a kind of authority uh, with that, that only those original appointed eyewitnesses had a right to claim, right? If you hear somebody say they're apostle so-and-so, you you tend to think they are claiming more authority than calling themselves pastor so-and-so or, you know, reverend so-and-so or whatever. So it's probably best really not to use that title uh, for others, if only to avoid confusion between the office of apostle, those who had seen the risen Jesus and were appointed by him to bear witness to that, and those who are sent out to do maybe a similar, but ultimately on significant points, distinct work. Okay, so we have these capital A apostles, right? Capital A apostles, those who had seen the risen Jesus. They were appointed by him as his official representatives to bear witness to what they saw and heard. They had this unrepeatable once for all work that was completed in their generation and in the writing down of their testimony in the New Testament scriptures themselves. So what does all this mean then when we talk about being an apostolic church? When we confess in the Nicene Creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does that mean? Well, uh, contrary to say the Roman Catholic Church, uh, we don't believe that apostolicity is reserved for those who can trace an unbroken succession of bishops from the apostles to the church today. Uh, that's kind of a, a historical view of apostolicity, which says that you know, regardless of what the church teaches or does, it's apostolic if its leaders can trace their ordination back to the apostles. It's the, the view of apostolicity of the Roman Catholic Church. 
that there's this sort of unbroken succession from the present pope all the way back to Peter. And uh, contrary to some charismatic churches, uh, we don't believe that apostolicity means having modern-day apostles lead the church. To understand apostolicity, we simply need to think of the role of the apostles, as we have talked about it and see it in the scriptures. They bore eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Jesus. They taught what they saw and heard. They are his appointed representatives in the early church. And so the apostolic church is one which trusts the apostolic witness, one which submits to the apostolic teaching, one which extends that apostolic message. So first and foremost, right, the apostolic church trusts the eyewitness, the, the eyewitness testimony of those apostles. Any church that does not believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead as Lord and King is not an apostolic church, right? They're, they're really not, not a church of Jesus at all. If you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, that was the apostles' message. Second, the apostles, as we read through Acts, they continue to teach. And we'll see that as we read through the book of Acts. Their teaching is central to the life and the fellowship of the early church. The apostles were the, the designated interpreters of what happened to the risen Jesus. The early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching so they could understand the resurrection and what it means and why it happened. And only when we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching to the New Testament scriptures, which are only rightly understood on the background of the Old Testament scriptures, only then can we be called an apostolic church or the, a true church of the risen Jesus. If we reject their teaching, then we're rejecting Jesus and all that he uh, stood for. Third and finally, the apostolic message, of course, is meant to be shared. Uh, we see in Acts uh, that though only the first generation could bear eyewitness testimony to the risen Jesus, uh, only the apostles were this official appointed eyewitnesses. Uh, but nevertheless, throughout the book of Acts, every Christian is called to proclaim the risen Jesus. A true church, an apostolic church, uh, will not only trust the apostles' witness and submit to their teaching, but will also extend the apostles' message by sharing the good news of Jesus with those around them. So apostolicity is not bishops who stand in unbroken succession from the apostles. It's not having present-day apostles oversee our church, but it centers on the role of the apostles and trusting their witness and submitting to their teaching in the New Testament and then in turn extending their message. It's their witness that is the foundation of the church. It's on that witness that we stand as wise men and women who build our houses on the rock. It's that witness that we proclaim as we announce the good news of Jesus, the conquering of sin and death, and the offer of forgiveness in his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we think about the apostles, and it's kind of another world, another day, another age, um, and yet uh, we see that it's, it's their witness that has uh, maintained and created the church today. It's their message of the risen Jesus that we believe and confess. It's their message of, of the risen Jesus that, that draws us together this morning as a church. It's their message of the risen Jesus that we believe and are saved. It's their message of the risen Jesus that we proclaim. 
So we pray that you would help us to, to understand the message of the apostles, to study it, to study the New Testament, study the Old Testament so that we can properly understand the New, to trust in what they taught, to believe their eyewitness, and to proclaim it to the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.